Father, thank you so very much for the Bible, your word. Thank you that you've spoke, you speak to us through it. And thank you for the gift it is to us and it is so prevalent. It's not hard to get a Bible. Lord, may we not take it for granted, but to be really eager and hungry for your word. May that be us this morning. Please give us that hunger, that desire to hear and know you more through your word. Really open our hearts to receiving what you have to say and allowing it to change us, to serve you better as we live. Amen. Ready, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest netter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of those commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever proclaims practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, you may have just heard the, uh, the Bible read then and thought, when was the last time I was here at Trinity Church, Victor Harbour, and we only had a Bible reading that went for four verses, right? Very short, eh? So you may be thinking, therefore, the sermon is going to be short as well. Uh, but let me just read to you what uh, Don Carson, who I think is one of the, uh, the world's uh, best-known advocates or uh, speakers and um, uh, expositors of this this gospel, Matthew's gospel, he says about Matthew 5, verses 17 to 20, they are among the most difficult verses in all the Bible. Interesting statement. And uh, let me say, when Duncan rang me up yesterday and said he was sick but was insistent that these verses be preached upon, I thought, this is very convenient, Duncan, you know? LAUGHTER but uh, let me say, I'm delighted to be with you. And these are wonderful verses, but they do require a fair bit of work as we get into them. You know, we really do need to apply ourselves. So uh, can I just pray for us as we do that, as we strap ourselves in, and also pray for the Andrews family. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us. We know it's not always straightforward. Uh, when we come to your word, we need to wrestle with truths that are one level straightforward but require work and father we pray that you'll give us that ability as we come to your word this morning to wrestle with it and to have it applied to our hearts for our encouragement and our strengthening as followers of yours and we pray this in jesus name amen some of you may have had this bumper sticker on your car many years ago when i became a christian there were lots of people who had this sticker stuck on their vehicles at various points I read like this, Christians aren't perfect, 
just forgiven. Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Now, I'd just become a Christian, and I remember thinking that this slogan could be guaranteed to really irritate other drivers on the road. Uh, you You imagine you sort of cut somebody off, they sound their warning device uh, as a result of you cutting them off, and you, with a sort of an angelic smile on your face, just point to the sticker on your car as an explanation for why you committed this. I just thought, this is not going to work terribly well. But can I say, it raises a question that Christians have debated over the centuries. If I'm poor in spirit, that's what it says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, I recognise I can't be in a relationship with God except by his free forgiveness. Now, if that's the case, that I have a relationship with God because of his grace and mercy, does it really matter then how I live? Uh, Because in the end, the slate will just be wiped clean, won't it? Right? And yet, when you come to the Sermon on the Mount, it seems to say that behaviour does matter, doesn't it? Verse 20, your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. If we went to the end of Matthew chapter 5, we'd read these words. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Uh, There seem to be expectations about how we're to live. So what's the relevance of the rules or instructions in the Bible about how we should live and especially when we come to the Old Testament. Well, we come to this section and Jesus says, Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, he's come not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfil them. And the law is just a shorthand way of speaking about the first five books of the Old Testament. And when we have law and the prophets, it's really just speaking of the whole of the Old Testament. It's a shorthand way of saying that. Jesus says he's not come to abolish the Old Testament or anything in it, but to fulfil it. And nothing, he says, will pass from the law until it's all accomplished. And therefore we must do and teach the law and the prophets. Now that creates enormously high expectations when it comes to how disciples are meant to live and behave, doesn't it? What I'm going to do, sorry, I should have said before, if you're trying to follow Duncan's outline in the leaflet, it's probably not going to help all that much. Um, But uh, where I'm heading this morning is I want to talk about Christians in the Old Testament, Jesus in the Old Testament, and then think through some implications that go with that. Christians in the Old Testament, Jesus in the Old Testament, and then just some fallout from, from that as we wrap it together. So let me say, Christians in the Old Testament... What is the relevance of the Old Testament uh, for believers? We turn to a place like Leviticus chapter 9, verses 9 to 10. It says there we can eat seafood that has fins and scales. Therefore, uh, you whiting and barramundi lovers, good luck, well done, that's good. Uh, But we're not allowed to eat that which doesn't have fins or scales. We're to detest that sort of food, not eat it. So... Should the oyster and calamari lovers among us, should they repent? Okay, and speaking as an oyster and calamari lover, uh, I've got a problem with that instruction, you see. Or we go to Leviticus 19, verse 19, and it says we shouldn't wear clothing that combines two sorts of material. 
How many of us are wearing totally pure, like who's got polyester and cotton on today? I deliberately wore a polyester and cotton shirt, you know, just to make the point almost. Instinctively, you know, especially if you've been reading the Bible for a while, that the stuff about salt and pepper squid or polyester and cotton shirts doesn't apply. And I suspect there's no one here who wouldn't agree with me at that point. But let me take you somewhere else. The last couple of years, there's been quite a huge debate in Australia, but around the world, about same-sex marriage. And even there have been people who've held themselves out of Christians who disagree on this issue. Someone saying, well, you don't follow the law when it comes to calamari and blended fabrics. Why do you worry about same-sex unions? Aren't we in the same sort of space? Now, that's, I think, actually, if you're a follower of Jesus, there's a fair question, all right? And actually, you should be able to answer that question. You should be able to wrestle with the truth of the scriptures and work it out. So how do we work out what stays and what goes? Now, different approaches have been taken over the years. Let me just canvas one that I think is probably the most popular one and then move on a bit from there. Here's the first one. Uh, People have divided the Old Testament into rules and uh, its regulations into three categories, uh, the ceremonial, the civil, and the ethical. Ceremonial, civil, ethical. So into the ceremonial category go things like uh, stuff to do with temples, priests, sacrifices, food laws, and they would say, well, these are not relevant because Jesus' death and resurrection dispenses with those. They'd move on to the civil And they would say, well, Israel was a nation and there were certain laws that applied to them as a nation. But we're now Christians scattered among the nations, so those civil laws no longer apply to us as God's people. And then I would say there's a third category, the ethical category. They're moral principles that reflect the very eternal mind and character of God and therefore they're, they're always relevant and they always continue on. So... Great example, uh, don't murder, right? An ethical category, the way you treat people, that actually, you know, we think has continued on very clearly. Now, can I say that this is a useful way of uh, categorising, it's very practical, it shows some insight into the way the Bible has been written. But can I say that there's actually a few problems with that structure and that way of thinking, the first is that you actually can't find it anywhere in the Bible. That is, you can find examples of it, but you can never find this structure given to us in the Bible for dividing up in quite that way. So we ought to be cautious because of that. The second thing is that these categories, although they are neat, uh, that what's in the Bible doesn't neatly fall into them um, in a straightforward sort of way. So if we went to Exodus 20, you know, that's where the Ten Commandments are laid out for us. From verses 8 to 11, we have a commandment about the Sabbath, right? Stop working on the Sabbath. So let me ask you, is it ceremonial, is it civil, or is it ethical? Ceremonial, civil, ethical. I could take a vote, but I won't force you to do that. Um, Can I say it's all three? And it's clearly all three when you go through the Bible, that it falls in that category. So the solution, the, 
The categorisation is not neat, or not as neat as you'd like it to be. Another solution that people have come to is that they will say, well, there's no binding place for the Old Testament on Christians today. No place at all. They go to a place like Ephesians 2 and verse 15, where it says, Christ has abolished the law. And he's talking to believers. So those who hold this view would say, well, this is a useful thing. The law in the Old Testament is useful for non-Christians because it convicts them of their sin and it drives them to God for mercy. But not so for Christians. Uh, The Ten Commandments, uh, for Christians, they belong in a museum because they point us to Christ, but they have no relevance for today. Right? That's the second view. Now, can I say, there's also problems with this view. Uh, So the first problem, for example, is you go to the passage we're dealing with today, Matthew 5, verses 19, and Jesus says, do and teach the law. He doesn't seem to hold this view, I don't think. And at other points in the New Testament, can I say, it seems to teach the law from the Old Testament. Jesus does that, I think, in the Sermon on the Mount. He teaches the law in the Old Testament. Or if you go to a place like Ephesians 4, verse 28, we're told the thief should no longer steal. As far as I can tell, that's a commandment in the Ten Commandments in Exodus. I think that those ways of dividing up and thinking about Christian relationship to the Old Testament law are not all that helpful. So what I want to do is look more closely at this passage and particularly these verses that talk about Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament. Okay, are you with me so far? We're pressing on? Okay, let's, uh, let's keep going. Chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus says, He's not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfil them. Or in verse 18, He says, Not one iota or dot will pass from the law until... All is accomplished until heaven and earth pass away. So the law stands, that's what Jesus says. But how does Jesus fulfill the law and the prophets? That's the question I think that a lot of this turns on. When you go later in Matthew's Gospel to Matthew chapter 11, verse 13, it says that all the prophets and the law prophesied until John the Baptist, prophesied until John the Baptist. How do the law and the prophets, how does the Old Testament prophesy? Well, it does it in a range of ways. There's the uh, classic way that we would understand, the predictive way. If we go back to Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23 that you've been covering in this series, it speaks about the birth of Jesus. And we read there, all this took place to fulfil what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. They'll call him Emmanuel. So quotes Isaiah 7 and is saying, in Jesus we have the fulfilment of that promise in Isaiah. Or Micah chapter 5 verse 2 predicts that Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. And Matthew chapter 2, verse 6 says this has come to pass. You see, there's a prediction and a fulfilment, right? Classic way of thinking about it. 
But there's also a broader sense of completion or fulfillment that you pick up uh, when you look at Jesus. Leviticus uh, points us to the sacrificial system for sin. But Leviticus also pointed to the need for an ultimate sacrifice to deal with sin that Leviticus wasn't providing. So we go to, again, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21. We're told uh, that Mary's son is to be named Jesus because he will save his people from his sins, from their sins. If we went over to Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 1 to 18, it talks about the way in which Jesus' death and resurrection saves us from our sins. And there it says in verse 1, Hebrews 10 verse 1, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. You see, Leviticus points us to Jesus. And then in verse 4, we get the explanation. Because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Did you get the point being made? I, I brought a uh, picture of my wife, Sue. Right? Here it is. It sits on my desk at work. Right? And uh, I look at it from time to time. It reminds me of who Sue is. But can I say, when Sue visits me at work and comes in through the door, I've got a picture here, Sue comes through the door, I don't turn to the picture and go, Sue, how lovely to see you, darling. Right? Right? That'd be dumb, wouldn't it? When, Sue, when I've got the living Sue who walks into the room, right, I, I actually welcome the living Sue and kiss the living Sue. Right? I go to the picture. The substitute is just a dumb way to go at that point. Can I say, there's, there's a sense in which Jesus' sacrifice completes what the Old Testament points to, and that helps us, and we cling to that reality, uh, that there's a fulfilment there. But there's even a broader sense of fulfilment, I think, that Jesus is speaking of here in Matthew chapter 5. When Jesus, he refers to the law and the prophets, now at this point he's talking about, remember, the whole of the Old Testament. Genesis 1 verse 1 to Malachi chapter 4 verse 6. And that's the point at the start of Matthew's gospel that's being made. We get the genealogy that runs from Abraham through David, through the exile in Babylon, all the way through to Jesus. And this, this is the great plan of salvation that God has for us. It all finds its yes in Jesus. So does Jesus get rid of the law? It's like saying Usain Bolt got rid of sprinting. Do you know what I mean? Usain Bolt still holds the world record for the 100-metre sprint, 9.58 seconds at the 2009 World Championships. Right? Here's the sort of... No doubt it'll be exceeded, but here's the, the pinnacle of what it means to be a sprinter. See, by doing what Usain Bolt did, did he abolish sprinting? <laughs> no, he actually fulfilled it. He showed it what, what it was meant to be like to this point in time. And even more so when we come to Jesus. When you look at the Old Testament through Jesus, you get a sharp, sharp perspective on all that God is doing to complete his purposes. 
having just sketched out a few of those sort of angles, what I'd like to do is try and draw briefly some of those threads together. Let me try and do that. Can I say the Old Testament, it reflects the very character of God and it does it accurately. So the Old Testament's never discarded. It introduces us to Jesus. But even parts of the Old Testament that we know have been superseded, like the Old Testament sacrifices, we know they've ended because of Christ's sacrifice, and yet still they give us a window into the very heart and character of a merciful and gracious and holy God. No question about that. But we need to understand that fulfilment, as we look at the Bible, is a diverse thing. And we can't be simplistic when we come to it. It's not just predictive. It's not just completion, like in the case of sacrifice. And it's not just appointed to the salvation that was to come in Jesus. It's actually all of it. And we need to realise that. And therefore, we need to read the Bible really carefully to understand exactly how Christ does fulfil the Testament, the Old Testament. So when it comes to um, sacrifice for sin, well, we know we turn to places like Hebrews 10. It tells us there's no more Levitical sacrifices than are needed because Christ has done it all. What about when you have an instruction like murder? Uh, How does Jesus fulfil that? Well, you go to a place like Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22, immediately after the passage we're looking at, and we teach it just like Jesus does. It's not just killing someone that's a problem. It's actually anger from the heart. Jesus fulfills the intention, God's purpose, God's uh, uh, the very depth of his purpose for for God's people as he instructs us that way. What about the food laws from the Old Testament, like oysters? Well, you get to Mark chapter 7, where Jesus declares all food is clean. Okay, it's clear there, isn't it? And when we come to a place like same-sex marriage, it's very clear, isn't it, when you read the Bible, God's intention for relationships between men and women, it's specified in Genesis 1 and 2. It's affirmed in places like Romans chapter 1 and the New Testament. And then you go to Matthew chapter 5, the passage we're in today, or just beyond it. And we see there that, that Jesus talks about the integrity we're to have in relation to marriage. It's male and female. Not even lust. Not even, that is, it's spelt out so clearly as you think about fulfilment. But, you know, I think that the key, actually, just focusing right down on the question of fulfilment is to actually understand the fact that these words here are uttered in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's Gospel, and particularly chapters 5, 6, and 7. Remember back in verses 13 to 16, God's people, disciples, they're told to be salt and light. They're told to be a city on a hill We're meant to be useful and to represent Jesus clearly and the way he lives and his intentions for this world by the way in which we live. Then we read in verse 20, unless your righteousness 
exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. Because when we read that, it's no problem for us because most of us are Christians and we hate Pharisees, right? In a sort of a loving Christian way, you know. Do you know what I mean? Like uh, when it says, your righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, well, you know, we look down on the scribes and the Pharisees as we read the New Testament. But remember, these were the guys who were the law keepers. These were the guys who were big on obeying the law and the prophets. They divided it all up into 248 commandments, 365 prohibitions, and they were meticulous in trying to keep it. And then you get to verse 48, and it says, Be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we know we can't be perfect. We know it's not possible. So we go back to our bumper sticker. You know, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. And we conjure up the, what we know of our understanding of Romans and Galatians and Ephesians that all tell us about the righteousness and the perfection we receive by faith in Christ. It's all a gift from God. And can I say those are wonderful, foundational, liberating truths that we need to cling to. But I don't think that's what's being taught here in Matthew 5. I don't think we're getting a theology of justification by faith here in Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is talking to disciples, believers, and he says, do and teach the law. He says, you ought to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Not just don't murder, don't get angry. Not just don't commit adultery, don't lust. Uh, not just love your neighbour, but love your enemy as well. That's what Jesus says. He doesn't make it easier for us. He actually makes it incredibly hard. And Jesus says you ought to be salt and light. You ought to live so differently. You ought to have impact as you live, at work, with your neighbours, with your mates, at the sports club, among your family that don't know Jesus. You ought to be those sort of people living perfect lives to impress them and to impact them. But you'll say to me, perfect? (laughs) Perfect? And I'll say to you, don't you want to be salt and light? And of course you do. But you can't. Can you? Or if you think you do, come and have a chat with me afterwards. We can sort that out. But can I say, you don't resolve that tension by relaxing the standards. Uh, God's intention for you in terms of being his holy people. Do you understand that's exactly what the Pharisees did? They tried to nail down it all so they could keep it. It's not there so we achieve a relationship with God. But we do want to please him from the heart and glorify him, don't we? But of course, when you understand that, then you do understand God's grace all the more. Because without an understanding of his grace and mercy, then you're crushed, you're condemned. 
But of course, an understanding of it does drive you back, doesn't it? To Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. We mourn our poverty of spirit. It drives us back to Jesus, who fulfills the law's demands on our behalf. It doesn't relax our desire to live holy lives. It actually does the very opposite. The very opposite. It's interesting, isn't it? The, the average Australian is a non-Christian legalist. Let me explain what I mean. There's the major religion in Australia uh, is to believe in God. Most people actually do believe in God in Australia still. That's the reality. And when you, when you get to heaven, uh, if that actually does happen, uh, if you keep the law, that is, if you've got 50%, then you pass. All right? That's the way the average Australian thinks. God's a celestial judge. He's a good bloke, much like ourselves. And uh, ignorance is the best approach because God would never blame you for something you didn't know about. Okay? That's the Australian religion, as far as I can tell. Friends, disciples, we know and long to be salt and light and to live for the glory of God. But friends, we also know our poverty of spirit, which drives us to the foot of the cross and to his grace and to his mercy. And do you understand how both these truths need to hang together? We have the wonderful, liberating grace and mercy of God and the call to live lives that match up to that reality and actually as you hold both those together you understand them both better as soon as you diminish one in favour of the other you fall into the abyss but as you hang on to the wonderful grace and mercy of God coupled to the call to live life as his children, to glorify and honour him, to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, you know you can't do it. So you're driven back to the grace of God that gives you this deep longing to live life for his glory and honour and back to the grace of God, his honour and glory, back to the grace of God. As you hold those two things together, you're a liberated follower of the Lord Jesus Christ with a deep desire to be salt and to be light in his world. It's a complicated passage, not, not because of the words there, but just as we wrestle with it. Uh, got questions about it? I know you've been wrestling with it in Bible studies this week. I'll be escaping straight after the service so you can ask Steve about it. Or uh, No, no, I'll hang around, so feel free to come and grab me if you need to. But let's pray that God helps us to actually work this through together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. These, these are incredibly challenging words. We know that they've They've caused challenge for lots of believers over the years. And yet, Father, we thank you uh, for that call, call to be salt and light, uh, the call uh, to live perfect lives, uh, not, not to justify ourselves before you, but to actually drive us back to the, the poverty of spirit that we realise is true and therefore to the foot of the cross. Yeah, Father, we pray that you'll help us to live as liberated people, knowing that we are right with you by faith in Christ, and yet not to water down or minimise the call to live in faithfulness to you. Help us not to be um, pharisaical legalists, 
but to be full of grace and mercy as we seek your glory and honour. We know that we'll keep working on this one till we face you, uh, come to you face to face, but nonetheless we pray you'll richly strengthen us so that we might uh, support one another, encourage one another and live for you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.